Welcome to the ICAEW Insights Podcast. Hello and welcome to the ICAEW Insights Podcast, where we analyse the latest news from the world of accountancy, business and finance. I'm your host Tom Herbert and on today's show we'll look at how the boundaries between accountants' personal and business lives have blurred during the pandemic resulting in, among other things, a rising number of disciplinary cases involving social media. What are the professional bodies doing about this? Details of the fifth Self-Employment Income Support Scheme grant have been released. How different is it from its predecessors and what should you look out for? And what is the difference between an e-money business account and a traditional business bank account and why does it matter? But before we get started, let's meet our guests. Firstly, Philippa Kelly, Director, Technical Strategy Business Group, ICAW. Welcome back, Philippa. Thanks, Tom. Pleased to be here. And to update us on the world of tax, it's ICAW's Technical Tax Editor, Lindsay Wicks. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Tom. Thanks for inviting me back. It's a pleasure. And completing our trio of experts, I'm delighted to welcome Sophie Wales, who is ICAW's Director, Technical Strategy, Tax, Ethics and Law Group. Great to have you with us, Sophie. Hi, Tom. Great to be here. Thank you. Right, let's get straight into it. And first up, we are going to tackle the government's Tax Administration Framework Review. It's quite a clunky title, but the review is likely to affect all taxpayers, businesses and those who advise them. Lindsay, first of all, can you tell us a bit about the review and and its scope? Well, Tom, it's a huge review. The scope is huge. I like to think of it as the Bayes White Paper equivalent for tax. It covers registration of taxpayers and agents, reporting and calculation of taxes, payment and repayment of taxes, and the powers and safeguards going with them. So as we move into a digital world, what should a tax return look like? What powers does HMRC need to administer those taxes? And what safeguards and rights do taxpayers need? We're in a mature economy, so Rather than starting with a clean slate, we've got to adjust where we are. I think we've got to accept that. But really, everything is up for grabs in terms of how we understand a tax return and the reporting. As I say, the ICAW has recently filed its response to this government consultation. And in it, the Institute, um, among many other things, has called for more resourcing for HMRC in order to deliver the vision set out in this paper. Um, Can you tell us why that is? Well, it's a 10-year project and it's probably going to span three parliaments. So it needs to be viewed as a major infrastructure investment project. Tax is a really important source of government funding and the collection needs to be simple, efficient and as certain as possible for taxpayers, agents and HMRC. We need the back-end system to be as good as it can possibly be with no workarounds. But 10 years is the end goal. We may see some changes sooner. So arguably some simplification is needed before we hit the deadline for making tax digital for income tax self-assessment in April 2023. We know that the OTS is reviewing the tax year end date and in the review itself we have talk about um, basis periods being a possible simplification. The difficulty we've got at the moment is that between us recording today and um, when this podcast is launched is that there is going to be legislation data. So whether or not we might actually see some consultations on these things, we don't know. But really, ICAW has called for three key building blocks to take place as part of this review. 
So we see the need for a single identifier for taxpayers. Registration, authorisation and authentication of tax agents is another key point. And then also consolidation of systems. We've got the bizarre situation where we've got income taxes dealt with in two different systems. We've got capital gains tax liabilities being established in probably three different systems with the 30 day reporting system that we've now got for residential property. All this needs to come together and be as simple and joined up as possible. On that basis periods point, um, you know, we, we obviously can't cover everything in the ICAW Insights podcast. So do check out ICAW.com forward slash insights for the latest on that. Finally, on the Tax Administration Framework Review or, or TAFA, if you like, one key part of the review takes a look at opportunities to reform HMRC's processes for tax payments and repayments. And that, that specifically examines how payment of tax might be moved closer to the time that income is earned. Can you tell us a bit about that part? Yeah, so payments and repayments are in the wider framework review, but there's also a separate call for evidence on timely payment of income tax and corporation tax. The government was quite careful when it put out this call of evidence to say that it's not for this parliament, but ICAW has argued in its response that it shouldn't be considered until the economy has recovered from the pandemic. ICAW is concerned that whether in-year estimates are an accurate basis for payment. So it's not about the accuracy of the underlying accounting records. It's really reflecting the fact that some claims are considered annually, for example, capital allowances and loss relief claims. So are accounting records the best way of establishing a tax liability during a year? We've already seen this for larger businesses. So larger companies have had a quarterly instalment payment regime for a long time, and it takes a huge amount of effort to get something that's anywhere near accurate as a basis for making those quarterly payments. And trying to put that out to the wider population and income tax self-assessment seems like a step too far and potential to create a huge administrative burden. But there are some businesses that might appreciate paying closer to when the profits are earned. So seasonal businesses, for example, at the moment for income tax self-assessment, we've got two payment dates in July and January, and those dates might not fall at the best time for those businesses. We also raised the fact that there are lots of other frustrations in the tax payment system. So for example, misallocation of payments, the inability to offset overpayment of one tax with a repayment from another, All of these are things that the government could be considering to make payments simpler for taxpayers and agents. You can read ICAW's response to the consultation along with a number of articles on the review on ICAW Insights by clicking the link in the show notes. Now, e-money accounts can be a convenient and accessible way to use banking services, but the financial services watchdog has recently warned providers that they need to make clear that they are not a bank. Philippa, you wrote a piece for us on this subject. Now, um, it might seem quite a basic question, but can we just start by outlining the difference between a bank and an e-money firm? Sure. It seems like it should be a, a simple answer to what might be a basic question, but it is actually more confusing than that. And that's actually why we ended up looking into this topic a bit more and writing a help sheet for members for this reason because when we looked around, there wasn't a basic explanation out there and we were seeing more and more queries from members 
either as they themselves were being presented with these e-money options or their clients were asking them, oh, I'm struggling to open a business bank account at the minute when there was that period in the pandemic when there was that real crunch around getting a new business bank account. And actually these these e-money firms were popping up quite rapidly and seemed to be a, a really timely and, and convenient way to get around the inability to open a bank account at one of the high street banks at that time. But what is e-money? So it's actually been around for quite a long time. And if you think back to store cards and, and gift vouchers, actually that's probably the first time we've all used e-money because it used to be mainly associated with issuers who fell outside the scope of regulation because it was more like prepaid cards that could only be used for limited purpose. So, i.e. your Topshop gift card to only spend in Topshop. Probably showing my age there, referencing Topshop <laughs> and gift cards, but there we go. And what it is, is you have an electronic money issuer and they have certain regulatory permissions and, and they hold money in an account. So it appears that like a bank account, but there are differences. So the way that they are regulated is different. What the e-money firm can do with your money is different. So they don't have the permissions that banks have to lend out money. It's not necessarily protected in the same way. So there is a safeguarding regime applicable to e-money firms, but that doesn't come with necessarily all of the same protections or capital requirements, for example, that a bank account does. Moving on to the article you wrote for ICW Insights, what has the regulator now said to these e-money firms and, and why did they deem it necessary to take this action? So the Financial Conduct Authority wrote to the CEOs of all e-money firms in May this year, telling them that they needed to communicate with all of their customers to more clearly explain what type of firm they were, what that meant, and what protections, so a bit more about that safeguarding regime that I mentioned, applies to money held in e-money accounts. And if you use an e-money service or you have an account, you should have heard from your provider by the end of June 2021. So if you haven't already, they might be getting a, a nudge from the regulator to get in touch with you. And what they were pointing out in that was actually a lot of the language and the advertising and the way that these firms present themselves doesn't necessarily make it clearer in people's minds that they aren't a bank. So given we access all of these services online, there's lots of different brands popping up. It can be quite confusing to understand actually what is the service you're signing up to? What are you paying for? And that reminder was needed because actually firms or individuals who are perhaps using these services may be a little bit more vulnerable anyway, perhaps because they can't access services from a traditional bank for whatever reason. So they're looking at other options and are maybe feeling a bit more pressure to take what's available to them to choose and get something done. And when someone's in that situation, it's really important that they get fair, clear and not misleading information from those firms that they're dealing with. Briefly then, uh, can you tell us a bit about the pros and the cons of using an e-money account? So I'll just highlight a couple of pros and a couple of cons. And obviously you should look at your own needs as a business or as an individual and think about what's going to be best for you at the time. But it can be very straightforward to open an e-money account. And if you've got a relatively simple and straightforward business, actually it might give you everything that you need and it will probably be much quicker than 
seeking to open a traditional bank account, you can probably access multi-currency more easily and, and undertake those transactions more straightforwardly. And one of the key benefits of some of these accounts is the way that they interface with other services. So whether it's bookkeeping or budgeting, the front end, if you will, can be really, really helpful and insightful for particularly smaller business owners because of the analysis that you get and that bit of extra data to help you understand what you're doing and how you're doing as a business. But depending on what you might be looking to do in the future, actually, you won't be able to access lending or guarantee facilities. So for example, overdrafts through an e-money provider. And because they are a simpler service, there might be a cap on how much you can hold in the account, for example, or the number of transactions that you can undertake in a particular time period. And as I said before, balances aren't protected in the same way that bank balances are. They are held in a separate designated account and there are safeguarding rules around that, but they aren't necessarily the same in terms of the regime as other deposit takers are regulated. Sophie is, as ICAW's expert in this area, um, there have been concerns around money laundering and fintech in the past. Are e-money firms considered riskier? So, I mean, e-money is within the scope of the money laundering regulations, but because it's quite new, the controls they have are fairly embryonic. But there's then combined with that the issue that the customers that they are servicing might be higher risk because these are people who either can't or, or don't want to use a traditional banking system. And the risk-based approach to money laundering means that if a customer is higher risk, then there needs to be kind of more checks conducted into their background and, and who they are. I mean, the ID checks that these providers use tend to be electronic, which I think is fine in this day and age. But you need to be sure that the system that they're using is kind of giving you adequate assurance that that person does have the identity that they're claiming to have. I suppose the other thing to, to think about here is just checking somebody's identity isn't necessarily enough when you're thinking about money laundering, because what that does is it proves to you that that person is who they say they are. But does it prove to you that they're not a criminal or a terrorist? So actually, it's about are there a bit more kind of widespread checks being done on who this person is, where their money's come from, and just checking that it's not come from, I suppose, unfortunate means, perhaps. So um, I think this is supported by some of the findings of a thematic review that was carried out a few years ago, which did find that these e-money firms need to tailor their procedures a bit more. So they need to properly risk assess their customers. They need to properly consider the risks of, of their specific e-money business, not just generically. And they need to kind of understand the purpose of the business relationship with that customer so that they can properly identify activity that looks suspicious from a, a money laundering perspective. Thank you, Sophie, and thank you, Philippa. A link to the article Philippa wrote for ICAW Insights, along with an ICAW help sheet about the pros and cons of e-money accounts, can be found in the show notes. Now, the latest government figures for the Self-Employment Income Support Scheme show that 2 million self-employed have claimed for the fourth support grant, with the government paying $5.5 billion to cover this. Details are now available for the fifth grant. Lindsay, can you explain to us what's changed? In most respects, it's the same as the fourth grant, but the big change is that the level of the grant varies depending on the turnover reduction that the business has experienced. 
So if the turnover reduction is 30% or more, then they'll get 80% of three months of average trading profits, and that will be capped at 7,500, as we've seen before. If it's less than 30%, they'll only get 30% of the three months average trading profits capped at £2,850. Now, for calculating this turnover reduction, they need to compare the pandemic period to a reference period. So the pandemic period is 12 months starting on any of six days between the 1st and the 6th of April 2020. The reference period is either the turnover figure on the 2019-20 tax return, or if that was not a normal year, then it's possible to ask to use the 2018-19 tax return figure instead. And if you're looking for more details on changes to the fifth SAIS grant, ICAW's Caroline Miskin has recorded a webinar on that very subject, a link to which can be found in the show notes. That's it for part one. Join us after this quick break when we'll be examining the increasingly blurred boundaries between accountants' personal and professional lives. Welcome back to part two of the ICAW Insights podcast. With the pandemic driving large numbers of people to work remotely, maintaining boundaries between personal and professional lives has proved increasingly difficult. One aspect of this that's been hard to miss in the mainstream media is bad behaviour on online platforms and social media. Indeed, ICAW's Professional Conduct Department has reported growing numbers of disciplinary cases featuring the use of social media and other online communications. To tackle issues such as this, the Consultative Committee of Accountancy Body, CCAB, which includes ICAW, has agreed on several common principles when a member's behaviour in their personal life could become of interest to their professional body. Sophie, you played a part in putting these principles together. I think a really important distinction to make right at the start of this is that accountants are allowed to have opinions and disagreements online, but... The CCAB principles set out when a member's conduct in their personal life risks spilling over and breaching their body's codes of ethics. So when does a chartered accountant's personal life spill into their business life? I entirely agree with you here, Tom. I think that the important thing to start off with is that our members are, of course, entitled to a personal life. They're allowed to have opinions. They're allowed to disagree with people. It's just taking care to make sure you don't overstep the line into something that could be considered unprofessional. And what these principles do is they set out a starting point, really, of kind of four main questions that any of these professional bodies would ask if they came across a case of kind of concerning behaviour by one of our members. And the first thing that looks at is, you know, has a member broken the law? You know, regardless of what that crime is, it could be of interest to ICAW whether that's for a crime that people would think is is related to the accountancy profession. So, for example, being involved in some kind of financial fraud, but it could also be an an act of serious violence or or something like that. And that's because any criminal behaviour by our members risks bringing discredit to to the profession of accountancy, where it's all about being a a, a pillar of society, really. So that's the first thing that, that has to be looked at. The second question is, has a member done something where their conduct could bear on their qualities as a professional accountant? So, for example, if there was something to do with their financial affairs, 
say HMRC raised a complaint with us that a member had made really quite serious errors in their tax return, quite significant errors. Now, I think that's something we would need to think about because that you, you do expect that a chartered accountant has some, you know, basic knowledge of, of tax, even if that's not their specialism, and that they're, you know, they, they should be able to complete a, a tax return to a decent standard. I mean, this isn't, you know, just just minor um, misunderstandings or or omissions, but I think where a member is, you know, perhaps trying to claim tax relief on something that it's pretty clear that that would never be allowable, then, then that is something that could be of concern. And then the, the second part of these principles are talking about is a member behaving badly and identifying themselves as a chartered accountant, because in doing so, they can damage the reputation of the profession. So the examples here are if a member were to send or post some, some seriously offensive or, or seriously threatening material online or, or in an email, and it's clear when they do that that they are a chartered accountant, because... As you can imagine, the people who see that would, would be concerned that it was a chartered accountant behaving in that way. But I suppose the last thing these, these principles pull out is that just because you do something anonymously or it's not clear that you are a member of our profession, that, that doesn't mean you have carte blanche. So if you behave in a very concerning way or make these kind of very, very threatening and offensive comments... It's actually quite easy in this day and age for somebody to put your name in Google and find out that you're a chartered accountant. So this last principle is saying if you behave really badly, regardless of whether you make it clear to people that you're a chartered accountant, if it's serious enough conduct, then your professional body might still be interested. Cases like this are obviously relatively rare, but cases have grown enough to warrant this action. What are the types of cases that we're seeing where accountants have stepped over the line? Yes, as you say, most of our members already get this right. But there are increasing numbers of complaints about things like members posting things on social media that they perhaps shouldn't have done. And there's a whole range of this. So it can range from breaches of client confidentiality, I think there's a challenge really in the in the culture and the modern world we live in that people are used to sharing all aspects of their life on social media. But, you know, we, we do occasionally get cases where a member without thinking will share something on social media that is client data. And clearly that's never OK, regardless of how restricted do you think the audience is or how short a time you think that post might be live for, because... Once you make that post, you can't control what, what happens to it. People can screenshot it, people can reshare it, and it completely kind of goes out of your control and could end up anywhere. It could end up back at your employer or with your professional body. So there's a few cases with, with that kind of theme. There's also cases of people getting drawn into quite public arguments, for example, on Twitter. And it, it may be that these things start off fairly innocently, but they descend into something that could then have extremely offensive content, you know, where perhaps it, things become racist or homophobic. And often this is just in the heat of the moment or frustration at getting caught up in the argument. But I think you always have to you know, think twice before you press send, because, again, it's in the public domain. Everybody can see it. And it's very easy for people to make a complaint about it. And then I think the third category that we are seeing more of are complaints triggered by the Me Too movement. So where there are concerns around the conduct of, um, for example, senior accountants towards more junior staff, in particular, you know, unwanted sexual advances, that is something that is potentially a professional behaviour issue. 
and it's actually something that our colleagues in the legal sector have been looking at in terms of disciplinary cases. So it's a bit of a growing issue. Is it fair to say that chartered accountants and other members of professional bodies are held to a higher standard of behaviour than, say, the general public? Yes, I do think that's a fair comment. And in particular, as a chartered accountant, our members are required to comply with all the parts of our code of ethics, and that includes the fundamental principle of professional behaviour. So what that means is that our members not only have to comply with relevant laws and regulations, but they have to behave in a manner that's consistent with the profession's responsibility to act in the public interest and avoid any conduct that they know or should know could discredit the profession. So that does really, um, I think, set us apart and um, hold us to a higher standard than just normal members of the public. Um, so I think what that means is that our members have to behave as a as a professional throughout their life. And in the circumstances we've just talked about, that can extend to your private life if, if what you're doing is, you know, so poor that it can damage our, our reputation. If a complaint is made about a chartered accountant, um, how is it decided whether it's upheld and who makes the decision ultimately? So, I mean, complaints can be made by all kinds of people, including the public, um, other authorities or, or things in the press. But, but, but those complaints all go to ICAW's professional conduct department. And what happens when a complaint is received is that each one is assessed by the team there, who were all experienced professionals, mostly accountants. And each case is considered on its own merit based on the specific facts and circumstances you know, and the context. And that's to assess to see whether this could potentially be a disciplinary matter, because as you'll imagine, there's plenty of things where a complaint is made and it's just not considered that it's that serious, really. And there is a fairly high threshold for disciplinary action. It has to be something serious enough to cause discredit to the member or to the profession. So I think at that first stage, if it's concluded that the conduct could be a disciplinary issue, then there's a proper investigation undertaken. And the outcome of that investigation is then reported to our investigation committee. And that's an independent committee made up of some chartered accountants, but also some lay people. And they look at the case in detail and, and they are the ones who decide whether there should be a disciplinary sanction. So it's a really thorough process. For more information on the principles, links to Sophie's article and the CCAB's guidance can be found in the show notes. That's all we have time for for today. My thanks to Philippa Kelly, Lindsay Wicks and Sophie Wales. You can read more detailed coverage of all the topics mentioned on the show via the podcast show notes or go to icaw.com forward slash insights. Thank you very much for listening and we hope you'll tune in next time. Bye for now. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more from ICAEW, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 